Wait, so Peter, we're we're the all invention the all in podcast is number one and we're number two right behind that. Is that what you just said? That's what I said. Thanks to you listeners. Thanks to you guys. All five of you that uh, rank us in that order. This week we've actually <laughs> tripled downloads per day on a- on average. Two to three X what our normal downloads are. We're about to the point I was talking. You're like about- a big deal, John. I'm not you a must be deal. like an expert in podcasting. I'm not an expert in podcasting. <laughs> hey everybody, if you need help with your podcasting, hit up John and he will make you look like a rock star. No, no, I don't no, no, no. I've been advised there was a startup that I was advising, they're like, we're gonna create a podcast. I'm like, why? How does it fit? Like run me through the financial numbers, how many people need to listen, how much it's gonna cost you to get those listeners what that's going to do to your revenue. I think so many people start podcasts and they're like, wow, this is a lot of work and I'm not really growing and they shut it down. I think, so here, here's how I look at podcasting. So I think there's that too. I think they don't realize how much work it is, but I think the people who win are the people who generally don't know how to quit. And number mm-hmm. two, they get really good mentors. Mm-hmm. So maybe a shout out, there's a guy named Tyler Stallman, different parallel universe, but he talks a lot about cameras and gear, and he's been very inspirational to me on for this podcast. When do he you talks think about the strategy. gear matters? Casey Neistat would say, do not let the gear get in front of the story, right? Yes, it matters though. <laughs> I think you just tell yourself that to feed your camera addiction, but feed my, I mean, these cameras are five years old, I think. So should we talk about what we came here to talk about? I don't know. Do people want to talk about cameras or how to how to grow a podcast? So I don't know. Are you going to start selling a course on how to, <laughs> so in, how to start a podcast? Inside joke that Peter and I have is people who claim they're so successful, they start selling these courses and that's where they start making a lot of money off the whole FOMO effect. Yeah, this it's like, how it's, like me. it's like, hey, we started this podcast and we got, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of downloads or whatever. And now we're going to like monetize it with our course. course buy our course for a hundred bucks so you can learn <laughs> how to start your own podcast. It's like, what did they do? How did they get there? And they're just stealing probably someone else's podcast. But here was the point I was talking with someone today about when do you monetize a podcast? And this is something we've like from a business partnership stuff like peter wants to monetize it i'm like i don't want to monetize but i was like i just want to get rich off this podcast no i want to monetize it because i want more resources to make better content okay but anyways go ahead but the the point was i was like oh you need to have about this many monthly downloads before i think you start monetizing and i'm like whoa we're over halfway there now we're almost there and john can get rich no and we haven't really we didn't i don't think we really took the podcast seriously until like four months ago like we did podcasts and we'd publish or publish once a month and now it's going in. And the next thing I'm really excited for is I think we're about to the point where we're going to get indexed or prioritized by Google and then our downloads should significantly be, you know, much higher than they are now. That'd be cool. I can quit Codebase. You can quit the University Growth Fund, create a podcast. We'll just make tons of money selling our How to Start a Venture Capital podcast course. No, I think the thing I like about podcasts is like, because Peter and I in our real life, we get asked VC questions all the time. And it's a way to, for me, it's about helping people at scale has always been the thing. How do you help people? Things like that. So it's one of the fun ways, one of the big side effects or motivators for me. So I'm just here for the free water bottle. You want another free water bottle? No, I haven't finished this one. We, uh, I'll let you know. Uh, Diet Dr. Pepper is my next favorite over Diet Coke. By the way, I've been living off of caffeine today. So anyways, we are going to talk about is venture capital good for small businesses? Next question. Next question. So let's go into like the why or hows. So how many of the companies that are pitching you, Peter, are small businesses? Well, in, in terms of what definition? In terms of Should like the small business administration's definition of a small business? 
I mean, the vast majority. Vast majority. So I was with the VC. I was at a conference, and I'm going to keep this VC's name confidential. But he was literally complaining about all the people who pitched to him mm-hmm. for funding. Yeah. He says that it's never a good fit. And in my are mind, are they I'm, never a good fit because like they're strategically not at, like they don't fit the fund strategy, or is it because they just shouldn't be raising venture money? They should not be raising venture money. Got it. Like I, I hear it too. There was someone, there was a, so without mentioning names or like, Hey, how do we, we were talking to like a podcast agency or I was, Hey, yeah. how do we grow this? And it's like, John, I want to hit you up afterwards. Cause we're thinking about raising money for my podcasting agency. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, I'm like, why, why would you ever raise money for a podcasting agency? Yeah. It's never going to happen. There's no IP. Like maybe unless you're going to become like a Gimlet, you know, Gimlet media yeah, where they created a bunch of shows, but that's, that's a different fit. And again, maybe even not a fit like, Gimlet raised VC funding and exited, but that's probably an anomaly. Yeah, I think it's more of an anomaly. I think it was like there was a there was a period of time where you could raise money and have an outcome with podcasting. And when that was exactly when Gimlet raised. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think generally it's not venture backable, right? Yeah, so Gimlet raised, the founder came from, was it This American Life? Yeah. No, not was it This American Life? Yeah, he came from NPR. NPR. So he had a huge background, created a bunch of shows. Yeah. But I wonder, like, a lot of these these publications like Venture Beats that we think are just crushing it, they're yeah. not that good of a business models. And no. they've been crushed and affected heavily from Facebook's advertisement model and mm-hmm. others. They just they don't have the power they once had. And I think a lot of them used to make money off the publications and events, and they primarily are now having publications to drive people to events. But a side side thing. But so but again, like. If I were to create a venture beat competitor, pro, you know, just not, is not a good good reason to pitch Peter or others. Yeah, I mean, I think for the most part, media businesses are not great venture deals. Mm-hmm. I think if you're trying to create an agency, most agencies aren't good deals. Like there's a local, not a local, a local VC fund, so it's probably public album funded Andela, which was it's like another dev slash staffing company. But again, that I look at as being like an anomaly. Yeah. It's not a t- most service companies don't get funded by VCs. They might get privately funded, sure, from like angels, and then they're taking usually. Pre- but frankly, they don't need a lot of money. Honestly, I don't know. John's like, I could do a lot with some more money. I mean, you wrote if you wrote a check. Yeah, but the flip yeah. side is, John, like you didn't need money to start mm-hmm. your company, right? Or to grow it. Frankly, like you go out, you get set, you you get customers, and then you get a developer, and you match them with those customers, right? Like. You're way oversimplifying what's happening here on the back end. <laughs> Peter does not know code base. But no, but but tell me I'm wrong. But that is like the essence of the business model. The essence of a software model is you go and you write a you build a ton of software, you build a product, because you can't sell anything until you have a product. Mm-hmm. And then you go sell and acquire customers. Right? Correct. And so you need the money up front in order to build the actual product. But there are a lot of products where like you don't need to build anything, right? Mm -hmm. And then then there's this other question of like, okay, well, there are some cases where maybe you're participating in a niche that's small enough that you can even like get your customers to pre-fund or to fund your development. And so like Mm -hmm. you can cover that. But if you want to go after like a really big market, you still have to raise a bunch of money to scale and grow and, mm-hmm. and achieve like, you know, big, huge outcomes. I mean, that's what we do at Codebase. We give our clients, when we started, we gave them really good discounts in order to front load security deposits to reduce risk. 
Sure. But sorry so like, sorry for making your business sound like it's crap. No, that no, was like, not my point. No, 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 no. Well, my I point just, is, is that like you're missing your no. I think you just don't understand. You're in your mind, it's super simple, and there's a lot that goes on, especially at the stage where Codebase is at. But again, Codebase seven figure business, not venture backable in the current model. So why isn't it venture backable? So Codebase is not venture backable in my mind because it's one. It's a service company. Most service companies aren't. Why not? The, a lot of it's the margins. You know, most staffing companies generally net ten to thirty five percent if you're lucky. It's not the margins. Yeah, there are lots of low margin businesses that get funded. Not by a lot venture. of margins. It's also not highly scalable. Why not? Um, I think if Codebase were to go after the Turing.com or TopTal model, that's a much more scalable model, and that's where VC dollars have started. In fact. One of my friends joked at me, just laughed at me. He's like, John, the same amount of time you've grown Codebase, someone built Turing.com and grew it to a billion dollar company uh-huh. in five years. What have you done in five years? I'm like, screw you. I hate <laughs> but they, But it's a very, they're a very but different model. They're an online marketplace. Investors love our online marketplaces. They don't, mo- and, and most service companies crumble. Well, because if you think about like, where's your core asset? The core asset code base, um, I would say it's the team, the collective, but you'd probably say it's me. It's not scalable. And I don't know, maybe I should let you answer this. I think the big thing is that like, when you think about value creation, Mm -hmm. right? The value that's being created at Codebase, right? Is your developers are, they're creating value for your customers, right? And that value creation walks out the door every night. Mm -hmm. And so theoretically, like, you don't control those people because it's not like they're slaves, right? Mm-hmm. And they are holding the value of the business in a real way, right? You also add value to the business by going out and selling and getting customers and managing people and like operating the business. Like there is value there too, but the core value that's being created ultimately that you are selling to your customers is what your developers are building. Mm-hmm. And if you want to offer more you essentially want to create more value for more people you have to hire more people that makes it less scalable Mm -hmm. versus a software business where if i want to offer i want to create more value for more customers i i don't have to create anything more and it doesn't cost me anything more right it it does but only at the margin right Mm -hmm. like i got to get some little more server space and i can help more and more Mm -hmm. and more people and that asset that I have does not walk out the door. I own it. Mm-hmm. It is my slave, yeah, so effectively, like that, right? That, that code base, it's like Twitter. Elon can lay off, what is it? Not lay off or encourage 80% of the, the staff to leave. And the business, for the most part, continues to run. Right. So like those are like the big things. It's like if I'm investing as a VC into a company, what am I actually buying? Mm-hmm. Well, if I'm if I'm investing in your firm, what am I actually buying? I'm kind of buying like, the brand name and the reputation mm-hmm. at mm-hmm. the end of the day, right? Correct. Because I'm not, I, I don't own the employees. They could just leave, right? Mm-hmm. Like I could buy the business and they're like, I don't want to work for Peter, right? Or mm-hmm. like whatever. And they could leave and there's not much I could do about it. Be right? Mass resignation. So, so those are some, some of the issues, but those aren't all of the issues around like what makes a good venture backable deal. Mm-hmm. Other things are like, is it defensible, mm-hmm. right? Can somebody else replicate what I do? And if they can, what the problem with that is that, Ultimately, as a venture capitalist, you want to invest in monopolies. And like monopolies are like this dirty word, but the reality is, is every company that's like successful, worth its salt as a venture backed company, is striving with all of their might to become a monopoly mm-hmm. because the big winners are all monopolies. Google's a monopoly, Facebook's a monopoly, 
Uber's a monopoly, right? Mm -hmm. Like Amazon's a monopoly. It's a monopoly in like 50 different areas, right? Like mm -hmm. they're all these big giant monopolies. And the reason for that is that if you are a monopoly, you make bigger profits than, mm -hmm. than commoditized businesses. And so if you've got a lot of other competitors, ultimately you're all going to be competing on price mm -hmm. and you won't generate the big, the big profits. And as a VC, you need your investments to be in companies that are going to get really big dominate their space so that there won't be any competitors so that they they can have monopolistic power to generate huge profits because when that happens they get valued very highly even if they're not generating huge profits today if they position themselves to be able to generate huge profits in the future other investors will see that they will value those companies highly and as a vc you will make a ton of money mm -hmm. if you're successful but building monopolies are is insanely hard and so most companies are not they're not able to do it. And they're not able to do it because like they don't have the right business model. They don't have the right people, mm -hmm. right? They're not operating in a market that's sufficiently large enough to generate big profits. Um, they don't have a business that's scalable, mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, you really need like defensibility. You need the right people. You need a big market and you need scalability. Mm -hmm. And so that's why most VCs invest in things like software because it typically will check a lot of those boxes. And when VCs don't invest, it's because they're like, this is not scalable, or this is not defensible, or this business model is like really interesting, but you're not the one to run it, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is really hard to hear, right? Mm -hmm. um, Luckily, I've not heard that yet, so. Yeah, so, and when I say you, I don't mean you, John. Maybe my business partner in Texas is saying that to me right now. But if you're sitting in there and you're thinking like, oh, I should raise venture money, you should ask yourself like, do I have these four things? Mm-hmm right? Can I be a huge monopoly someday? And if you can't, you should not raise venture money, in my opinion. Okay. Like, what about angel money? Are you, are you classifying angel or private equity as part of venture? I think it depends on how you define angel money. Okay. Uh, if you're talking like friends and family that are kicking in money to help you start your company and get it off the ground, right? Like if I came, you were going to start Codebase and you were like, hey, Peter, I like, I need a little bit of money to help get this started. And I kicked in some money. Would I technically be an angel? Maybe. But like in my mind, I'm not your traditional angel because I'm not anticipating you to go out and raise a series A and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. Like I'm just giving you money to help you start the thing. And I would want to structure it in such a way that I felt like I was going to get paid back in some way or form, whether that was as a loan and you were going to make, you know, debt payments to me mm -hmm. or whatever, or as like dividends that you were going to pay out. Right. Okay. So um, I think in those cases, sure. Like. Yeah. Friends, family, fools, SBA loans, credit card loans, like mm -hmm. all of that stuff. Totally reasonable and and probably where you should spend your time starting your business. Um, yeah. Okay. The competitors of Codebase I see fundraising typically are raising from angels. Yeah. Or strategic partners. Yeah. Definitely not. And, and Delant, uh, Top Talent, Turing. Again, very different models because those are more marketplaces. They're more like recruiting than anything else well yeah but they they're they're keeping the talent and taking a percentage like two percent of the deal of yeah. every everything that goes to their platform yeah and there can only be so many marketplaces which is why it was interesting that turing hit at the space but i think if you talk about venture and include private equity so here's a question at you at some point codebase would be interesting to a pe firm sure yes or no at what point but it would never be interesting to a university growth fund unless i became a marketplace or something else yeah because yeah a private equity firm will back uh you know non-venture backable businesses so codebase once was, they reach like a sufficient scale because like here's the thing private equity revenue. they don't care about 
building a huge business that has Mm -hmm. massive monopolistic power and the ability to generate huge profits. I don't care about that. Mm -hmm. What they want is like super boring, steady defense, like steady cash flows, right? That's what they want because Mm -hmm. their whole underwriting model is essentially like, I'm going to buy this thing with some portion of equity, some portion of debt. I'm going to use the cash flows of the business to pay off the debt. That's Mm going to generate the bulk of my return. Mm-hmm. A lot of private equity investors would argue with that and be like, no, we're all about value creation, blah, blah, blah. But and, and those can generate like substantial pieces of their overall return. But if they're being honest with themselves, the bulk of their return is going to come from using leverage. Mm-hmm. And so they need like solid, steady, recurring cash flow businesses. Mm-hmm. So for them, when they look at a company like a code base, they would say, the real value here is the contracts mm-hmm. that you've got, right? If you've got these contracts, it's really hard to switch out because, you know, I switch out and it takes me six months to like six to 12 months to really uh, switch to a new provider. Like those are really high switching costs. So the contracts they have are great. And as long as they're operating like efficiently, they're generating good, solid, steady profits. I can then use that to underwrite uh, how much debt I take on and use that debt or use those cash flows to pay off the debt. Mm-hmm. So like in that case, sure, like they could, they would totally find it interesting to invest in you mm-hmm. guys once you reach a certain scale. Yeah. So if you look at private equity as a subset of venture capital, Codebase could be early from like an angel's perspective, perhaps an angel, but it's more of like, you know, they're, they're probably looking more to help a friend out, although everyone wants a return. Or then the second part would be private equity and a VC, a traditional VC would never touch Codebase right. unless my model changed. Right. Or they saw they were like, hey, Codebase will be the next Robert Half. Right. Which, by the way, is fine. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm you fine can make it. a ton of money selling to a private equity mm-hmm. fund. I'm just trying to give examples that the audience can relate to or research right. and say, hey, does does my model fit? So we've talked about podcasting. But they're going to want you to get big enough mm-hmm. that they have confidence that your cash flows are steady. Yeah. I so if you're too small, they're going to be like, well, you're look, not large enough to, to justify or, or to convince me that those mm-hmm. profits you're generating are like steady and consistent. Mm-hmm. over over the long run right but a private equity fund could go to a code basement like they're like hey you're at 25 to 50 million that's sure. when a pe firm might come in sure or they might come through and say hey they're they might look for development companies with 100 to 300 devs yep. and then bundle a bunch together yeah they could roll them up too which is also but, a model but, that you did but it's in, with it's, simplest but it's interesting just going back to what you said on like the 25 to 30 million is that if you're thinking 25 to 30 million revenue they could care less about the top line revenue number what they care about is the EBITDA number, Correct. the cash flow number. So if you're, mm-hmm. and you could be a lot smaller. I mean, you could be at like 5 million of EBITDA and be interesting to some private equity players. That mm-hmm. is pretty small. But to your point, like, yeah, then there's this other play where private equity investors will basically go and roll up a bunch of them. And the idea there is that a larger company is going to be less risky than a smaller company mm-hmm. and and therefore should have a pay, like a premium, a valuation premium. So you buy up these small ones, you integrate, you roll them all up together into a really big company. And without doing anything else, you've now taken a, something that was small and risky and turned it into something that's large and less risky mm-hmm. and therefore should be more valuable, even if like revenues don't increase or or better said, like cash flows don't increase mm-hmm. um, and generate a return that way too, right? And those are some of the different levers that private equity funds will use to generate additional alpha or, or return on their investment. Mm-hmm. And yeah. 
We did do that on Simplest. Okay. So, I mean, that's a fair call out. I would say like generally the Simplest model is not really venture backable. Would you um, do another, if Simplest And Simplest came- like, so so for those that you don't know Simplest, Simplest is uh, basically like a systems integrator for Salesforce. So if, like you're a company, you want to use Salesforce, you want... You, you don't want it just like out of the box. You want something that's a more customized solution. You would hire somebody like Salesforce. Salesforce would come in and help set it up, deploy it, train you and your staff on how to use it uh, and get you up and running, integrate all the, the appropriate things, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of ways, like same challenge, right? Like your assets walk out the door every day, blah, blah, blah. Um, would I do it again? I would do it again with the right people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what was interesting about Simplest was Ryan Westwood is a phenomenal entrepreneur mm-hmm. and was able to build a culture that was so good and so strong that your the assets, the value creators, right, did not walk out the door yeah. <laughs> and leave. And he had great contracts. And he had good he had great contracts, but even those contracts, like it wasn't like they were they weren't the same contracts as like a code base. I would argue code base has better contracts, right? Because you're just coming in and setting up Salesforce, right? And then mm-hmm. you're kind of done. There might be some like ongoing training and some ongoing management, but it's not the same as like having like offshore devs. And so but I think the margins in, in his model are better. Yeah. I mean, assuming you can keep someone staffed or utilized at least 80 percent of the time. Yeah. I think the other thing that he did really well. So he did a, a few things really well. One of those things is he built an incredible brand mm-hmm. that was able to produce like consistent high quality results. And so customers were coming back. And so part of the invest, what you were investing in was was the simplest brand Mm -hmm. that had real equity value when it came to sales. And then the other thing is he did this whole roll-up strategy too, where he'd go to these smaller competitors, he'd buy them and roll them in. Um, And this is where the culture became super important is because he was able to retain a lot of those people that he had acquired. So one of the challenges is if you just went and bought these companies, but then everybody left, you lose all the value of what you had bought. Mm-hmm. And so you needed like this really strong culture and this really strong brand in order to make the whole model work. Um, all of that said, <coughs> all of that said, and I love Ryan and I like Simplest was a great outcome for us and like all of those things uh, and Simplest sold for, you know, a very good number. It still never like achieved that huge, massive monopolistic success right? why did you invest in it because i feel like it's still like understand your model yeah it doesn't match up with most vcs uh yeah i i mean i think that's fair i mean if you look at those four things that i talked about one of them is is this the right person okay and sometimes backing the right person can make can make the difference okay so Here's the other thing about VCs. I know you're smiling at me like you're so full of crap. I'm not smiling at you that way. I mean, I like I really like Ryan. I think his charisma is like um, it's off the chart. It's like Hulk Hogan charisma. Like <laughs> he can command a room, command an audience. So I'm not fault. I'm like, I'm I think the audience wants like the whole point of this podcast is so people get in your brain. So I'm not judging you. I'm like, I'm like, what button can I press? So Peter yeah. will like vomit more valuable stuff. Well, I mean, the thing is, is that like all VCs lie at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Right, they're like, "Oh, we only do enterprise SaaS, right?" But uh, don't pay attention to this consumer product deal we did over here. Mm-hmm. Right? So, yeah, like those four things in a typical world, should he have raised venture money? Probably not. 
right? But but he also had a unique but he was like strategy. very like intentional about how he was doing it and mm-hmm. making it work, right? He was like, okay, we're gonna build this really incredible brand. We're gonna roll up all these companies. We're gonna establish ourselves as like the go-to service provider, and then we're gonna sell to one of these you know large shops like Infosys, who they ultimately sold to. But they could have sold to Instructure or Aon or a whole bunch of others, mm-hmm. right? And so it was like a very clear. Um, plan and strategy mm-hmm. and you had him and it was the th- roll-up strategy that could execute and pull that off and had he not said he was going to roll up he probably would not have done it no if it hadn't been him if he hadn't had the roll-up strategy if he hadn't had like a very clear exit path right mm-hmm. if he hadn't had a lot of these things we wouldn't have done it okay totally fair those are not things that are in the current code base model what other businesses do you often get pitched that should not be pitching you? Uh, well, I'll tell you like one thing that kind of bugs me sometimes is people that are pitching me and the idea is kind of interesting, uh, but they haven't done any of the hard things okay. to like, you know, validate the business or, or, or try to grow it on their own. They're like, me personally? they're like, oh, if I just raise money, then it would solve all my problems. But the reality is there are so many hard things that you can do as an entrepreneur that don't cost any money. They cost time, guts, okay. no like, you know, skill. And um, so oftentimes like entrepreneurs, like I tell them like, you should just don't raise, like go do some hard things, get some more traction, mm-hmm. get some more people on your team that are exceptional, right? Demonstrate to me as an investor that you are really good. Like you are a really good founder that can do hard things and run through walls. And then I will give you money so you can run through more walls, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's not like a specific type of business. It's just kind of a pet peeve that's like, sometimes I see that. They're just not fully baked. <clears throat> it's not so much that it's not fully baked. It's like there are, th- so, so for example, they'll come and they'll be like, well, we need to raise this money in order to get like this amazing person to join the team. And I'm like, well, if it was really that compelling of an idea, then they would just join the team. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, you look, I them? get that. This is super hard to do. And it's like really easy for me to sit in my seat and be like, well, you should just go do it. But the other part of me is like, but I see companies all the time and have funded a lot of them have, that have gone and done that. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah, it's hard, but you're competing against people that have done it. But they're and they're they're bringing in industry expert. The industry expert sees it and doesn't need the paycheck to convince them that it's worth the risk. Yeah, because they can see the vision is going to be yeah massive. And or, you know, the entrepreneur is just so good at, at communicating that vision that mm-hmm. they join. Okay. Right. And then you're like, sweet, I want to back this entrepreneur because they're incredible at communicating this vision, okay. not just with me, but at employees and customers and so forth. Um, other companies that shouldn't, and you know, I think most consumer products businesses should not raise venture money. Okay. Largely because margins are usually too small um, and it's really hard to forecast revenue uh, and you're, you're ultimately at the whims of a lot of other platforms when it comes to customer acquisition. Okay. So you're either like selling wholesale, so then you're dependent on your your you know wholesale channel to to acquire customers and keep buying from you uh and they have their own incentives to like basically screw you over and then or or alternatively you're you're at the mercy of Facebook and Google and advertising mm-hmm. dollars right or influencers or whatever your strategy is so i think for most companies doing consumer products they shouldn't raise venture money and the other thing is that like a lot of them don't need to raise venture money because there's just so many ways to start a product a, a product company this day you don't even, you don't even need to have product to start generating sales for okay. a consumer products business um i would not want to create a cpg 
company. I think, I think any company that, you know, even though I just said how much I love Simplis, I think the vast majority of companies that are services should not raise venture money for mm -hmm. all the reasons we talked about. Mm -hmm. um, I think the other companies that I see that like, I don't know, companies that are like, so so there's two types of this. One is like it's a it's a it's a one to two mm -hmm. development, right? So if you read like zero to one by Peter Thiel, it's you know zero to one is like this huge innovation, and then one to two is like an iteration of that innovation. So like I remember early on in my career, I met with this company that was they were like there are all these like Airbnb competitors out there, right? Mm -hmm. There's Airbnb, there's Verbo, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> and then there were a whole bunch more mm -hmm. at the time. And, uh, and they were like, what we do is we are a platform that sits on top and we funnel all of them okay. into one place. So we're like the portal for them. And it's like, yeah, that's probably not going to be successful. Right? Yeah. Um, in large part because your, the companies that were under them were all, all had the ability to become very monopolistic like Airbnb. And then that was just going to narrow it down to like really one option. You're a portal sitting on one option or two options. It's not super compelling, right? It doesn't mm -hmm. add a ton of value. So companies like that where they're just like iterative, they're just like marginally better, but not like massively better. Um, and then the other one is, and this is closely tied to it, is just companies that are like, it's like a me too. It's, you know, it's like, dude, there's like 10 other companies doing this already. You're going to launch like yet another mental health company, mm -hmm. you know? And it's like, ooh, that's going to be tough because there already are a lot of mental health companies. And like your marginal difference is not going to be enough to displace like the number one player. What are your thoughts about the, like, for example, the banking, banking industry? We're seeing a lot of banks now target ethnicities. Uh-huh. Is that a valid business strategy or is that a fad? So like Affinity Neobanks, mm -hmm. which I backed one. Okay. Um, you know, honestly, when we backed this other one, I really thought like there was some interesting angles to be had there. And I think there are still some depending on the demographic. But what I've found at least is that as you start growing, I don't know, it's, it's really hard to compete with larger banks that have a lower cost of capital mm -hmm. and... Uh, and a whole lot more features and stability. Um, and once people lock in with a bank, it's really hard to get them to switch and to actually use your product on an mm -hmm. ongoing basis. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think I think it's doable, but I think it's tough. Okay. I don't know. There are a whole bunch of other businesses that people shouldn't... I mean, here's the other thing. If you talk to, like, 30 to 40 VCs and you can't get something done, you, it's... Either like I thought the number is a hundred. You have to talk to a hundred VCs. Well, I don't think it's quite a hundred, but you know, it's probably in the range of thirty to forty. If you talk to thirty to forty VCs that could actually write a check in your business, and they don't invest, it's either you or it's the business. Mm -hmm. And um, if they get excited about the business, then mm -hmm. it's probably you. Okay. <laughs> right. If they're like trying to understand the business aspects of it and like get interested, and then like. They're like working with you more and more and then like they decide not to do it. It's a good chance that it's you. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know. I okay. see that too, right? Where I'll meet with a company and I'm like, it's a cool idea. And I could see how some, somebody else could pull this off, but not this, not this particular individual. Here's a side question. So a VC that turned me down in the last 12 months. Yeah. I pitched the firm. Yeah. And this is a friend at the firm. Yeah. But they, you know, they, they sent me off a partner and I'm like, okay, I, I got to know. 
I mean, not, not, I, I got a no answer, not like I got to know what the answer is. Hmm. And then I hit up my friend at the fund and said, okay, I know you guys have passed, but now I want you to tell me friend advice and I'm fine that you passed. And it was interesting because the first 20 to 30 minutes of the conversation, it was all about, hey, John, the world's not ready for AI scheduling yet. Mm-hmm. I went to him and he said, this is, why, this is your main reason for rejecting? Yes. Do you realize that AI is nowhere in my pitch deck? Nowhere. And that, and then I told him that answer. And then he went on another five minutes pontificating how the world wasn't ready for it. And I said, it's not ready. Like, we're not, we're not pitching that at all. That's mm-hmm. not our pitch. Mm-hmm. Like, why are you getting this? And it made me wonder, I'm like, what are these, what are VCs actually latching on to that See, aren't I've, even there? I don't know a hundred percent. So if you're listening, <laughs> I'm not. Uh, and I love the guy, but it was I, like, I don't have any insight here. So I could be wrong. And it could have been my fault but, for like, I think what will probably happened is they looked at your pitch and they were like, this has been done before. Mm-hmm. And it's it's like... He anchored somewhere else though. Well, let me finish. So I think he was like, this has been done before. Mm-hmm. To make it interesting, it would need to be AI driven. We're not ready for AI driven stuff. So okay. very pass. Very, very possible. But then I finally ran them through and I'm like, AI could just be a feature. We could just turn, you know, when it's ready, we can just turn it on. Mm-hmm. We're just about building a community under a brand. But, but And then he's like, okay, I get it. But then he still wasn't interested in investing. Of course. But, like, but, but, like, but I think, I think though. I got a maybe out of it. It was really a, I don't think this is an interesting idea. I got, no, 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 no. So the, the, the end point, and, I, and I've often debated this. Yeah. The, when we finally were able to like take, put on our, you know, take off our, our, put on our boxing gloves and just go like pound it out. Uh-huh. I ended it with a, okay, I see where you're going. I like, I see the five models you're looking at. I like this one that you really seem to like. And he says, you're probably too early for us, maybe. And I'm like, okay. And I was looking at it for more feedback and I'm like, hey, I got, I got somewhere, right? Uh-huh. If, you know, if I refine this pitch, I probably could raise off this. Yeah. There so. you go. So you already knew. No, it's it's about getting feedback. But it was just like as we're talking about which businesses should or shouldn't raise. I, I took a tangent because I've got I feel I'm self-diagnosed ADHD of how often are when you're pitching someone are they anchoring on something that has nothing to do with you that you've never brought up and that's the reason you reject it. And it might just be hey in this industry the next innovation is AI. No, that them. totally happens, right? Because and they don't tell you this and you don't know. And like yeah, most... but but that works for and against you because sometimes VCs will be like they'll they'll skip a few steps ahead and like have this vision of what the company could be and get excited about that mm-hmm. and then fund that even though the company's not okay. actually there or never actually ends up there mm-hmm. or has any desire to ever end up there, mm-hmm. right? And then the VC is all like, you know, well, what about this thing? And they were like, well, we never talked about that thing. And we're like, but that's why I invest, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I think I think that definitely happens. But if that happens, probably what happens more often is the VC hears your pitch. They immediately like tie it to some other company that they've heard. And they're like, eh, no, okay. right? I've heard this pitch before. Or they just start making assumptions, right? Mm-hmm. And again, super, it was a super valuable feedback session. And most VCs don't open up like hey here's my thought process no because there's no rewards to to giving feedback okay I mean, that's the hardest part about this podcast i'll sit with the founder and they'll be like give me advice and like i had one lunch meeting this week and we're not going to say when we, we recorded this so that the founder can't like anchor to it but like it was the worst idea ever no intellectual ip i think it was an interesting concept but i just feel like i feel like today markets act a certain way and there better be a very good reason why you think the, the market's going to change and they were just using existing technology and i'm just like and you start giving the feedback and they start fighting you yep and i'm just like i don't know how to respond here because he wants feedback he's burning he's not paying for no, no, he doesn't want he doesn't want feedback 
He wants confirmation. Yeah. How do you handle that, Peter? I don't know. Like this podcast. Is Mostly I just don't give a lot of feedback. Yeah. I feel like. Because every time I give feedback, I get argument. Okay. Or, or I get like the silent treatment, like, oh, this guy's an idiot. Okay. Right? Like, oh, okay, great. Rarely do I get a, hey, thank you. This was good feedback and helped me understand like how I'm communicating this like wrong or, you know, areas where I need to sharpen my pencil. Like I almost never get that. Right. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that like there, the other reason there's no incentive to give feedback is because as a VC, like sometimes the feedback is like your baby is ugly, mm-hmm. but maybe your baby will grow up into a swan. Right. And then I want to invest, but I don't want to piss you off and tell you your baby's ugly mm-hmm. because maybe when it starts looking good, I want to invest and mm-hmm. I don't, I want you to have like warm and fuzzies about me still. Uh-huh. And so it's a lot easier to, to just be like, well, you know, it's just not a fit for us right now, mm-hmm. but stay in touch. Cause you know, maybe, maybe you end up doing those hard things that I want you to do. Mm-hmm. And once you've done them, then you start looking more attractive okay. and I'll fund you then. Right. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to burn that bridge before you've done those things. But you know, sometimes, Sometimes I wonder like how many VCs have been like the reason why entrepreneurs have ended up being successful, like VCs, like rejections where it's like, I'll show them. And now they have this chip on their shoulder, which I think is actually super valuable for most entrepreneurs. Like pretty much like all successful entrepreneurs probably have a chip on their shoulder of some type. (laughs) Okay. Um, Because it drives them, right? You have to have something that's like driving you. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Anyways, yeah, I just I just wonder how many VCs have like you know pissed off some entrepreneur and they got this chip and they got to prove you know they okay. got to prove it to everybody that they're 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 gonna make it work. Okay, I dig it. Go Which ahead, if you're an entrepreneur, you should take you should take rejection. You just add it to your yeah that chip on your shoulder. Yeah, the hard part is when he actually sent me a link of his app working. I wanted to throw up. Was that bad? Wow, that's pretty bad. And I, I'd have to like I, I, without divulging stuff, I'd have to tell more, and then he'd be like. You'd be as shocked as I was. The problem is, is that people, people have to be in a certain place in order to take feedback mm-hmm. and where it's useful. And most of the time when people ask for feedback, they're asking for validation, not for feedback. Yeah. I think what he was looking for is validation. My idea is good. And I want you to introduce me to my next investors is what he did not bring up. Yeah. And I would never put anything he'd done yet in front of them. Mm. Yeah. It's just fair, right? And to a certain extent, it would be nice to be able to tell him that without ruining the relationship mm-hmm. because he's probably thinking his app, his baby's still good looking and he's going to waste the next several years of his life mm-hmm. pursuing something that will ultimately go nowhere. But maybe if I told him, he just wouldn't have pivoted. Also, I don't know enough about the space, right? Well, and if he, the reality though is that if you did tell him that mm-hmm. and he's looking for validation, not true feedback, then it wouldn't make a difference either way. Okay. You'd just be wasting your breath and damaging a relationship. Yeah, I just need to figure out how to roll out of that scenario and not burn burn them. Be like, I don't know. I don't know about the space. Well, sometimes that's what you say. Just not ready. So if you ask John for feedback and he's like, Ooh, I don't know. I don't know this space. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, good luck. Then you know that he actually thinks your baby is ugly. <laughs> and maybe my criteria is, hey, I'll, I'll be willing to introduce you, but for the most part, unless you're at 10000 in revenue per month or more, or unless you're growing it like say 17% a month or more on certain metrics or have like a hundred thousand, you know, monthly active users, you know, most VCs right now aren't going to invest in you unless they already have like an existing relationship. Yeah. Or like a sponsor brings you in. Right. And these stories about people who are raising off of just a pitch deck, there's always a backstory that we don't really know. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, usually that and then the backstory is that they've built and sold multiple companies before. And they don't tell you that. And they're like, but they tell you the, the sexy This part. bitch deck raised $5 million with zero traction. Mm-hmm. But you don't realize they've already sold in the space. Yeah. Or they, they have like a rich uncle who's putting money in. And then other, and then other investors want to, t- to tag along. And they're really buying that network with the rich uncle. Yeah. And the rich uncle's doing it for non, you know, for more altruistic ways, reasons helping family members. <clears throat> Divvy. <laughs> Is that a good fit? No. <laughs> we'll see who makes it to the end of this podcast. Should we scrub that one out? I don't know how how uh, how controversial you want to be. I want to be honest. We'll bleep that one out. But there's we know there's a local company that exited, and I think there was a the was it the uncle or the dad? Dad was a huge funder of it that yep. made it pop. Well, did he make it pop or did he just make it like have the potential to be successful? So you've talked about like Joe going. I mean, was he just like an angel? Right. An angel, but with the reputation. Yeah. You take out, if you just take the cash and not him, it would not have gotten funded, in my opinion. Maybe, maybe not. Because you've talked about the example of Jogo and Taxbit. Yeah. And you're like, who made who? Yeah. And in this other example, the the father made the company. You know, he, he gave it all the inertia it needed. Yeah. At least from my perspective. I could be wrong. Yeah, I don't know. I think the founders, I think the founder had a lot of like great qualities too mm-hmm. to pull it off. But. Oh, definitely. Great, great qualities. Didn't mess it up. I mean, that's one of the most unspoken. Just don't mess it up. Yeah, just not messing it up. It's kind of true. Like some of the, my best investments are in companies where it's like, it's like it doesn't even matter who runs it because the, 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 the product they've built and the pain point they're solving is just like there's such good alignment there. Mm-hmm. It's just like you just need somebody who's not going to screw it up and they'll do well. Mm-hmm. Those are the best. Those are rare. Super rare. All right. Well, venture is all about rarity. Mm-hmm. And this has turned into a 47-minute podcast. Anyone still awake? <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. All, all right. right. Well, thanks. Go to Venture Capital Auto FM, and you can subscribe, follow, and would love to hear your feedback. And we have a Slack community, so you want to engage with us, it's like the best place to connect. If 45 minutes wasn't enough, check out our Slack channel. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thanks.